Also, uh, just kind of a, a Berean family uh, thing for you to note. Maybe just a few minutes ago you heard a a little tone. Maybe you're wondering, what is that? Is there something wrong with the sound system? Is there a new instrument we're trying to employ? No. It is the presence of our sister Annie Fisher. and She's over here and she has a machine that supports her body. And so that helps her be present with us. And so when you hear that, that tone, don't allow it to distract you. Allow it to be grateful. Allow your heart to be grateful that she can be a part of this worship service and be with us today. And uh, a great thing that God has given common grace to allow her to be part of that. So just want to make you aware of what that tone is because I've seen it be a distraction for people. So just want to make you aware. Well, I don't know if you uh, pay attention to just kind of popular social media, but a few months back... There was this phenomenon that took place on TikTok and over the social media, like, how often do men think about the Roman Empire? Anyone hear that? Anyone? I did. In fact, my daughter's embarrassed that I'm in, in, you know, saying that because she thinks my father even is aware of this. But my point is this. During Christmas, I'm very aware of the Roman Empire. We talked about Caesar Augustus. Who was Caesar Augustus? In truth, he was the very first Roman emperor. His uncle, Julius Caesar, was the first dictator. And that's why he got himself killed. But, and since some senators didn't like that, he got himself killed. And so... Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, Mark Antony, maybe you've heard of him, and uh, another general named Marcus Lepidus, they formed a triumvirate to go after the assassins of Julius Caesar. And after they had done that, they decided to, dis- to distribute you know, the Roman Empire amongst themselves. Well, you know where this story is going, right? And then there was infighting between them. And Caesar Augustus was the one left as becoming the emperor of the Roman Empire. And so it's into this that Jesus is born. Now Caesar Augustus did some pretty good things. I mean, at least from a civic standpoint. He brought what was called a Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, which included a whole Roman road system which brought a lot of you know, order and commerce and, and convenience in that regard, but it was also enforced by the Roman legions. We will build this, Roman, this system, and you're going to like it, and you're going to pay for it. So it was a time of great business and busyness, but it was also a time of great brutality. It's a time of progress, but a time of oppression. And the people that were in charge were Caesar Augustus, Locally, a governor named Quirinius up in the northern province of Syria. And, and then right there in Judea, a man named Herod the Great. We'll talk a little bit about them. But in their mind, they were the masters of the universe. They were the ones who defined you know, where history was going, what was important. Yet in this backwater town, 
place called Nazareth, the angel of the Lord came to a young woman named Mary and announced to her that she was going to carry God's king, God's son, the true Messiah, and that he was going to be born and bring forth God's kingdom into the earth. And he was not a king that was going to come and bring subjugation of the people. In fact, he was going to come alongside of the people and serve them. He was not a, a king that was going to bring great military you know, uh, conquering. Rather, he was going to bring peace, real peace, of men and women being reconciled to their, their creator. So that's what we're going to look at, the quiet coming of our king today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look into God's word, especially in Luke chapter 2. So, Lord, we're grateful that uh, you are the king of kings, and there is no one like you. And you were so different from what we expected. Would you open the eyes of our hearts once again, even more than 2,000 years later, to see the truth of who you are and to be grateful and praise your name. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And we thank you for Annie being here today. Amen. So, the first thing I want to point out, at, that this king is confirmed by the word. That this king is confirmed by the word. Sometimes we're so familiar with this story that we kind of forget some of the details that were there. A census is decreed. And so a man named Joseph, has to, who lives in Nazareth, has to take himself and his fiancée who was with child and make a 90-plus journey down into, actually it's up into Bethlehem. I say up because it's, the topography goes up into the mountain area. It's a treacherous journey. And he has to go to Bethlehem because he is in the line of David. He is a blood relative, a descendant of the house of David. And this is the birthplace of David. So that's where he has to go to register for this census. And we know that David was that great slayer of the giant Goliath. We know that he was the second king of Israel. We know that he was a man after God's own heart. And the one to whom God promised when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then later on in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promised to David a forever king. But circumstances in the first century didn't look too promising for this. First of all, it had been 586 years since the last king of Judah had been on the throne. It was a man named Zedekiah. And he was captured by the, by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sentenced him to have all of his children put to death in front of him, and then have his eyes put out. So that would be the last thing that he ever saw. Very cruel sentence. But he had no heirs. Now the king before him was his nephew. A man named 
Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. And he was captured earlier and deported to Babylon, but he was still alive. In fact, he still had sons that were alive. But the rub with Jehoiachin is that because of his evil behavior, God judged him. And there was a prophecy that no offspring of his would return to the throne. And if you're interested in that, that's in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. And then you have the current power situation. The Roman Empire is clearly in control. And Herod, the local guy, he is a despot. He is a guy that is not going to do anything to let anyone have control. In fact, he killed his own wife and a few children because he wanted to jealously protect his throne. So politically, whoever is in political power, it's, it's not a good situation. It seems unlikely that the family tree of David would ever bloom to rule and reign ever again. In fact, it really just seems like a dead stump instead of a tree. But this is exactly what God is doing. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is exactly how God is going to do this. You see that stump there? There's a shoot coming out from it. There are two genealogies in the, uh, the Gospels. And maybe you just kind of skim over those things. But if you look at them closely, they're evidence of how God is going to keep his word. The first genealogy is that of Joseph, and it's found in Matthew chapter 1. And you see that when we get to David, the next in line is Solomon. So Joseph is a descendant of Solomon. In fact, he's a descendant on down the line of Jeconiah, and Jeho- who is Jehoiachin, the very king who was cursed, who would de- be disqualified from coming back to the throne. So how does God reconcile that? The other genealogy is found in Luke chapter 2. And we believe it's Mary's genealogy. A man named Healy is listed there, and we believe that this Healy is Mary's father. Mary is not some just some girl. She is a physical descendant of David. But when we get to David, the son that's named after that is not Solomon. It's Nathan. Whoop, whoop. Nathan does not become king, but he is in the royal line. He is in the royal line of David. So here's the point. As the genealogies go on, we find that Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that is a huge doctrinal thing, folks. That's how Jesus is the actual Son of God. She, Mary is... Jesus is conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle baby. That's how he escapes the sin nature. He is also a a blood relative of David through Mary because she is a blood relative of David. That's how he escapes the curse of Jeconiah. 
He is is related to David through Mary. And maybe you go, well, that's very interesting, Pastor. So what? It just seems like Bible trivia to me. And maybe that was a similar response to the people at the time. Look, we don't really care what this guy's genealogy is. We just want someone to kick the Romans out. Okay? And we'll give him the title, Son of David, if he's successful with that. That's what they're looking for. Again, who cares? The answer is God does. And the answer should be for us, we should too. We should too. We should believe that we have a God who keeps His Word. And what He promises will come to pass, whether we can see it right now or not. Because right now, the tree of David just looks like a stump. Right? But God is going to breathe life into this. And so promises like, he, if we confess our sin, He is faithful, He is just, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Promises like, and we know that He works all things for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. If those are not true, if He is not faithful, then it's just platitudes. Now we have a God who keeps His Word. And indeed, this is what really clarifies, or I should confirms that Jesus is God's chosen King. That's what's going on here. Those are His credentials. Number two, this is a King that condescends to be with us. He condescends to be with us. Verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This implies very strongly, folks, that Jesus was born in a barn. Anyone ever tell you that? Shut the door, you're born in a barn? Jesus most likely probably was. At least in a cattle trough. Okay? And maybe it rubs us the wrong way. Because royalty should not be born in a barn. Let alone the Son of God. What? What is going on here? And maybe we attribute this sometimes to human error. Maybe we didn't plan ahead. Just look at this here for a second. Did Joseph and Mary fail to plan ahead, to call ahead? Did they fail to, you know, anticipate what was going to happen? Or maybe we could point to the greed of the innkeeper, that he was hard-hearted. Again, we think this king should be born in a castle, not in a cattle stall. But here's the thing. It fails to see the truth of what God has told us in Isaiah 55.8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. God Almighty orchestrated all of this. He orchestrated every detail. 
If he wanted his son to be born in the inn, he certainly could have arranged that. He certainly could have found a way to bump somebody, right? I mean, this is the God who split the Red Sea. This is the God who fed his people in the desert for 40 years with manna every day. This is the God who rescued the three Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace. This is the God who has His Holy Spirit bring a miracle baby into the world. Bumping and creating room in an inn is not too difficult for Him. But as we've already affirmed in our, song, our songs and even in the reading earlier, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the God that has come to be with us. He literally is. And this is what God has said in His Word about who He dwells with. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the High and Exalted One says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the One who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He was born in a manger, so he can relate to anyone who is born of such humble beginnings. To come alongside anyone who has suffered poverty or marginalization. In many ways, this is a living metaphor of how he put on flesh and comes to dwell within our mess. As Philippians 2 talks about, he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and, he, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus would say of himself, for the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is God with us. He came to dwell among us. And experience maybe the, some of the stuff that we experience that's not very good, not very easy. The legitimacy of his birth was probably questioned. We know for a fact the legitimacy of his ministry was questioned. Hey, isn't this the son of the carpenter? He's subject to life's challenges and limitations. He experienced hunger, thirst, pain. We know he was probably homeless most of his ministry life. He was called a drunkard, a glutton, a heretic, possessed by a demon. And all because he hung out with sinners. Sinners who, who knew they were sinners. Jesus condescended to meet us in our need. Because we're stuck in the muck by our sin. To meet us in whatever stage we're in. I was talking with our brother Lavin over here. He's one of our students here at the UMR. And I was asking him about, he's from Africa. I think the country's Lesotho, did I say it right? I asked him, hey, what, what is Christmas like in Lesotho? And he said, well, you know, we, we celebrate Christmas in the churches, but as far as socially, the people that celebrate Christmas there are usually the wealthy people. 
I said, that is a tragedy. Because Jesus, the King, came to, to dwell with the lowliest. And that doesn't exclude those of wealth, but I'm saying He came to be with all of us. There's no one too lowly. He does not come to come alongside of, to be with. He came from glory to dwell with us. Think of the most pristine delivery room at Mayo Clinic or OMC. And then going to this rough, unsanitary, dirty stall. It's kind of what it's like. Jesus leaves glory to come and be with us in our muck to save us. And that leads to the last thing I want to point out today. The king is communicated to those who need him. The king is communicated to those who need him. This part of Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14 focus on the encounter between the shepherds and the angels. And we could talk about all the details about that, about you know, what were these shepherds doing outside of town, how far away were they, you know, what was it like to be blinded by this light and overwhelmed by it, and what did the angel uh, hosts sound like. But I'm going to focus on the message. The message of verse 14 which says, glory to God in highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those, literally peace to men on whom his favor rests. Two things that are happening in the coming of this king. Number one, it's going to bring glory to God in the highest. That's what's going to happen here. Among his angels, among his heavenly host. But how? By God enacting His rescue plan to redeem and reconcile His image bearers. As who we've already talked about are way laden with sin and their failure before a holy God who really deserve His judgment. On the other hand, we are the crown of His creation because we are made in His image. Called to reflect His glory. So this King is sent to bring reconciliation. He is sent to bring peace between a holy God and sinful man. And to take our place or He would experience our judgment and we, in exchange, would be given His righteousness. And all this is an expression of His favor. His favor. His grace, if you will. And you know what I note about this message coming? It didn't go out to the religious experts. It didn't go out to the high priests. It didn't go out to the Sanhedrin. It didn't go out to the Pharisees. It didn't even go out to good synagogue or temple attending people. It went out to a bunch of shepherds. And if you know anything about the social strata of where shepherds stood Socially, during that time, they were considered as thieves, rogues, people to be avoided. But people who knew that they were sinners. And if they were going to be saved, it was going to take a Savior to save them from their sin. This king would later on say, 
He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That He came to seek and save that which was lost. And who is that? That's you. And you. And you. And you. And me. Because i got three fingers pointing right back at me. Because we all stand equally before a holy God. Condemned on our own. And yet He came to seek and save that which was lost. And if you know that, if you have received that peace and that grace, are you rejoicing in what you have received? The gift that Pastor Neil was talking about earlier. He has extended it to you that you may have peace with a living God. Because of the life he lived, because of the death that he died to pay our price, and because of the victory he experienced because he rose from the dead. What a great thing to celebrate this Christmas. And if you don't know the favor of this king, I want you to know that favor is still available to you. He is still inviting you. That message is still calling out to you that you can have peace with the living God and experience His favor. You can be reconciled to Him and so much more. You can become a son, a daughter of the living God. That is the gift He wants to extend to you today. But this message that is good news for all the people, it does you no good if you just go, that's nice. You have to respond to it. You have to say, that is for me. I realize (laughs) I got nothing before a holy God. I can never be good enough. But He came to do for me what I could not do for myself. The Scripture says, That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And as to as many as received Him, even those who believed in His name, what He did, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, the sons and daughters. That could be yours today. That could be yours today. Maybe you want to respond to that. And at the very end of my message, I'll give you a chance to do that. But back to this glory in the highest thing, right? Glory with these angels. Here's my contention. Is that the angels know God is up to something. They're just not really sure what. They're not really sure of his plan, how he's going to redeem his image bearers. And it's revealed to them as this is all taking place, as his son comes to earth. They're seeing this come into play. You see, for so long, God's people were waiting for a Messiah, for a Savior. And for so long, the angels are kind of going, how's God going to do this? What's this going to look like? 
First Peter kind of informs us about this. This is First Peter chapter one verses ten through twelve. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come. So, you know, God is tipping his hat. They searched intently with great care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen to this. And even angels long to look into these things. Like, did you see what God did? That's amazing. That's why he's God. Glory to God in the highest for his amazing plan to rescue his image bearers. Because I was wondering, what is he going to do with those guys? The rescue of the king brings glory to God in the highest. This birth of Jesus, this king, it's confirmed in his word because God keeps his word. This king came to condescend to be with us, to rescue us from the muck. And this message that he brings It's good news of great joy to everyone, but it really is only effective for those who know they need it. And I hope you know you need that. Because He is for you. Because He is gracious. Because He wants you to have life and not death. So Bobby, would you come on up and get ready with the worship team and let me respond in prayer here. And if you're out there and you want to respond to this King, Just pray along with me. My words aren't magic, but they are an expression of a sincere heart wanting to respond to the King. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I know that you came for me. So I want to receive what you have done. I want to repent of what I have doing my own thing. And I want to turn to you and ask you to come into my life and I receive your sacrifice I receive your victory and I receive your life. Come into me and change me. Make me your own. Make me your child. And give me a heart of great joy for your gracious gift to me. And for the rest of us, Lord, let us be like the angels in marvel of what a gracious God did to draw us back to himself. Make that the reason we have a Merry Christmas this season. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?